Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Heino Falcom will join us to discuss light in the darkness. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, black holes. Who would ever think that you could capture a picture of one? It was done in April 2019, and millions of people were watching when German astrophysicist Heino Falke presented the first ever image of a black hole to the public. Joining us today to discuss this very fascinating image and story behind it is Dr. Heino Falke. Dr. Falke is a German professor of radio astronomy and astroparticle physics at Radboud University in Nijmegen. He's a winner of the 2011 Spinoza Prize, and his main field of study is black holes. He has penned the new book, Light in the Darkness, Black Holes, the Universe, and Us. Dr. Falke, thanks so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. Well, it is certainly our pleasure, certainly a fascinating uh, tale here of black holes and actually capturing an image of a black hole. I mean, just I'm curious why you decided to put this book together. Well, I was really amazed, you know, how people reacted emotionally to that image and to the story we were telling. To us, I mean, it was sort of we were stuck in that story, right? We were doing the science together in, in a big team. But when it got out, it, it resonated so enormously with people. Four and a half billion people saw that image. And, you know, later when I met colleagues, they said they had actually tears when they saw that that image come out and how it, it moved them. And so I thought this is a unique story to tell. And I want to tell the inside story, how we made that image together. But it also embedded, I think, in the larger story of humankind, you know, our quest to go to the ends of space and time, to the limits of our knowledge. And it started all with us, you know, looking up at the sky and looking at the stars and wondering what's out there and then building telescopes, understanding more and more. And now we really get to the very edge of everything, you know, the Big Bang where everything started in the end of space and time, namely black holes, where we don't know what's inside. You know, it's hidden from our view due to this event horizon. The black holes are mysterious things. And so we've gone a long way. Indeed, we have it. And your book about sort of our evolving view of the cosmos. Absolutely. You know, we started small, right, with with a small village that we were living in. We were discovering that there's a, you know, a world around us. We're discovering the entire world. We're looking at the stars. And then we're discovering that, you know, there are other worlds out there. People were thinking about this already very early on. And then with, with telescopes, we found out how the solar system worked. We found out how how far the stars were away. That's only a few hundred years ago. We were wondering about this universe for a long time, and only since a few centuries, really started digging deeper and, and seeing more. And now we have all these satellites and, and big telescopes. And like no generation before us, we're able to see the cosmos in a way 
that you know nobody has seen it before with the eyes of God, so to speak. We're looking at the earth. We're looking at the cosmos. I think that is, if you reflect about it, it's just we are a privileged generation to be able to see and know all of that. How did the concept of a black hole, the idea that they exist, first come about? The first one to mention something like this was Reverend John Mitchell, who was thinking about a star would have a gravity so strong that it might actually capture light so that you wouldn't see the light. You would only see its gravitational pull. But then it took really until Albert Einstein developed general relativity and really revolutionized our view of space and time. And within a few months after he presented that theory, he was called Schwarzschild, you know, a German physicist and mathematician who in the trenches of the World War figured out the basic mathematics of black holes. He didn't know these were black holes. He just assumed that, you know, he had a mass concentrated in, into a point. But then, you know, you could show that this had weird properties, that light would go around in circles, actually. And it had a virtual surface, you know, not even a surface, some, some sphere that surrounds it where information and light can only go inside and never get out. And this was so weird that Albert Einstein himself didn't believe this was possible. He did not believe in what later would be known as black holes. It was Oppenheimer then, you know, the father of the atom bomb, the nuclear bomb, who showed that actually you know, stars could collapse and in that way you could form a black hole. And he proved Einstein wrong, essentially. And still, it was only a theoretical possibilities until we discovered quasars in the 60s, enormously bright, very distant nuclei of galaxies very far away. And people were thinking, hey, maybe there is something like a big, massive object lurking in the center of these galaxies. And then we're looking at nearby galaxies. We found more of them. And we found there's evidence of dark mass in the very center, concentrated dark mass. We found radio emission. We found extremely bright sources. Sometimes they were faint, sometimes they were bright. But there was enormous amount of energy produced in a small region. And people were thinking, could that be black holes? But it was always something that was far away, that was almost impossible to see until, you know, two years ago when we presented that image. Indeed. I mean, the evidence for black holes always has to sort of be inferred based on their effects on other things. What was the idea then behind trying to capture the image of a black hole and how did you go about it? Yeah. How do you see a dark hole on a dark background, right? So that that's not easy. So what you have to do is you have to shine light at it. And what, what then happens if you shine light at a black hole the light will be bent around the black hole and will, it will appear a dark, a bright ring of light, of fire, so to speak. In the center, you'll see a dark shadow, as we called it. That's where the light actually disappears, the missing light. So all you need is a big black hole and enough light that's shining at it. And that's something that we predicted in, in the year 2000 and said, you know, in the center of our Milky Way, there is a big supermassive black hole. And there's a certain radio frequency which, where it emits, where the plasma around it will shine light at it. If you pick that radio frequency, you zoom in onto the central region, and it will be illuminated with this radio light from all directions. And on the background of that light, you'll be able to see that shadow. But you need a telescope the size of the Earth to see that. 
And that technology is actually available. That was already starting to develop at the time. It's called very long baseline interferometry, where you combine radio telescopes all around the world and you connect them into a virtual telescope. And people had done that at radio frequencies, and now we had to do it at a much higher frequencies, at few hundred gigahertz, 230 gigahertz, a sub terahertz radiation. That's the kind of radiation they use at the airport scanners when you have to lift your arms, right? You may, you may know this. And so it's millimeter waves, and they are emitted near the event horizon. And if you build that world-sized telescopes, you can actually see that shadow. That was a prediction that we made. And it took 20 years to realize it because, you know, when you say this, people say, yeah, interesting idea. Yeah, may work, may not work. And you, know, you have a lot of convincing to do. And then you have to, you know, do some theory. You have to build the instrumentation and the colleagues in the U.S. developed, you know, high speed data recording equipment. You need exquisite atomic clocks at different telescopes to synchronize them. And then, you know, you can build such an experiment. And to building up that collaboration and trying this out and going to the mountains and, and observing and hoping for good weather, this is all needs to come together to make it work. So, I mean, it sounds like such a massive undertaking. It must have taken years and years, or was it once the ball got rolling that it sort of steamrolled? In science, nothing is, is, is ever easy, right? But what certainly is true is that at some point, people really got passionate about it. You first have to bring everybody together, and that's a difficult process. It's like United Nations, honestly. I mean, it's Europeans, it's Americans, Latin Americans, it's, it's Asians, people from Africa, from, from all different continents getting together, different institutions. The stakes are high. And so that is a very difficult sociological, political process, which really took many, many years, I would say, of negotiations and different groups positioning themselves establish some way of, of working together, the developing the technology as well, developing this, this software and the analysis tools and talking to each other, and then agreeing on, on, on a, a path forward, getting the funding. You know, we, we got 14 million euros from the European Research Council. The Americans got similar large amount of funding from the National Science Foundation. And, you know, putting this all together, that allowed it to happen. It would not have happened without the enthusiasm and the passion of all the people involved. And you know, there were a lot of sacrifice people had to make. I mean, the last years when we you know, looked at the data, it was just crazy. I mean, it was almost a traumatic period for everybody because we had to check each other. Because you know, if, if you do something of that magnitude, you can't just trust one single person. We didn't trust ourselves. We, we questioned every bit in our analysis. We had different groups checking each other and endless telecons and discussions and so forth until we finally believed what we you know, were willing and able to, to show and what we found. The actual data gathering part of it was just a minor fraction of the whole process then. It's really that data analysis and tease out what was in that signal. Absolutely, though it's one of the most wonderful periods. I still remember being in Spain and uh, in Andalusia and uh, near Granada, where the Alhambra is, and there's a mountain where uh, the Pico Valeta, 3,000 meters. You go up to the telescope for two weeks. You spend your time there, following the schedule of the observing run, hoping for good weather, and just you know enjoying wonderful food up <laughs> there. And you're just doing science, and that's just paradise for an astronomer. And then comes this 
period. And it's just two weeks, you know, and then you spend two years really, you know, waiting for the data, reducing it, writing it up, discussing with each other, you know, what, what's going on. And that's the painful, but, you know, also interesting period and phase of, of science. Uh, that's the, the, the amazing thing about astronomy. You have, you know, all aspects coming together, you know, being out there and at night uh, at the observatory, being in front of your computer all the time, being in, in collaboration meetings. It was a crazy period, but really, you know, being at the observatory looking up, that was my favorite part. It certainly paints a very romantic picture of science. What was your impression then when the image came together? I mean, what was it like when you saw it? And It, it totally surpassed all my expectations, I, I must admit. I always try to be pessimistic, right? One of my students, Sarah Isaun, came came to me and showed the very first calibrated data. It wasn't an image yet. But, you know, you have to do a Fourier transform, the mathematical operation in your head in order to turn that into an image. But when I saw that, it was so, you know, she had seen it before and she was smiling at me and showing to me another, no, have you seen that? And it was already telling us of a ring, right? Something that could be like what we expected. And then we went into subgroups and trying to make that image. And then, you know, we independently of other groups secretly sort of looked at our image when I saw it, it was just the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I mean, it, it, in the end, it's just, a, you know, a few pixels, you know, of, of a ring and a dark shadow in the center. And, you know, it's brighter on one side, but it was exactly what we had predicted that, that we should see. I, I just couldn't believe it because, you know, honestly, in science, it never works like this. In fact, I had seen before, I'd love to experience this once, right? You, you do an experiment and you're just lucky and you see what you, <laughs> what you expect exactly what we had predicted and i was just hovering above the ground for an hour <laughs> you know i describe it as you know meeting someone your, your loved one that you have been you know waiting for for 20 years and you only have written letters and now you see her or him face to face for the very first time and you know he or she is much more beautiful than you'd ever imagined and that's exactly the kind of feeling you have at this moment it's just like you know, you're awestruck but then you're also, you know, in a way, you're shocked because you're afraid because, you know, you know, we have to test this thing, right? Is this right? Is this, is this real? Uh, can we trust that result? Because, you know, I've seen so often in science that you see something that you really want to see and it's just wrong. You know, that's a moment when you have to be very critical of yourself. And I think that's where everybody got nervous. <laughs> and, you know, we went to ex exclusionary pain to, to test this thing. Um, lo and behold, it it stood you know up to all the tests, and we were able to publish it. Did it confirm our views about how the cosmos works? Did it lend any new insights into exploring these black holes or other objects like it in the universe? Yeah, in the sense it actually it it, it confirmed all our prejudices <laughs> about black holes. And, and it confirmed all the the simulations we had made before, the the basic theory. Uh, look, that, that shadow is the larger the black hole is, the more mass is in the black hole, the larger the shadow, the larger the event horizon. And this dark region that we saw was exactly as large as it, you know, you would predict on the basis of general relativ relativity. And on this, this mass scale for such supermassive black holes of a billion times the mass of the sun, that had never been tested before. We had never seen how a black hole works. 
we are now actually, you know, in another paper, we showed, you know, we're looking at the magnetic field surrounding it. We think that, you know, before matter falls into it, you know, gas is swirled up and, and, and rotates almost at the speed of light and magnetic fields are amplified. And they actually allow some part of the matter to shoot out again from these black holes. They're called jets, plasma jets. And we see that happening. We see that in our simulation and we can confirm it with the data. And so what we're doing, really, we're sharpening our tools, understanding how black holes work. And of course, we hope at some point we see a deviation from our expectation, <laughs> but uh, we haven't yet. But we definitely have absolutely improved our understanding. And, and something that was fantasy, a vision before, now is becoming testable science. It's becoming reality, something that we can look at. This black hole that was observed, it, it was sort of at the right sweet spot for where the Earth is in relation to us. Yeah, it's a very good question. The sweet spot is the size of the Earth, actually. As I said, you need a telescope the size of the Earth to see that. Why? The bigger telescope, the larger its diameter, the sharper it can see. And, you know, black holes are incredibly small compared to, you know, their mass. The one we were looking at is the size of the solar system. Okay, that sounds really big, but it was at 55 million light years distance. Okay, that appears like a mustard seed in New York, as seen from Europe. And that is the biggest supermassive black hole in our neighborhood. There's another one, which is much smaller, but still, you know, supermassive, but much, much closer. That's, of course, the center of our own galaxy, the Milky Way. That has a million solar mass black hole in its center. And this is what uh, we want to see next. Then we would need a telescope larger than Earth, because all the other black holes are too small or too far away. So we need a bigger telescope than that. And so we would have to go into space to see them. That's not impossible. We've, you know, there are various concepts out there. We could put, you know, a few radio dishes into space, they orbit around the Earth, and then we can actually image black holes. In fact, we could probably image all the black holes in the universe and, and see them, at least the supermassive ones. So there's still an entire universe to be discovered but it requires planet, a virtual planet, larger than Earth, so to speak. You know, having gone through this whole process, how do you feel about having seen it, what it tells us about the universe and us? To me, it was certainly a, a very special moment in my life to be able to see something never seen before, to look at regional space and time that you know nobody had ever seen before. And that's so, so weird and so different uh, from all of us. And black holes are actually, you know, it turns out more than just science. They're also almost modern scientific mythological objects because they really represent end of space time. The limit of our frontier, you can go into black holes, you can never come back. At least that's what uh, relativity tells us. And, and people are so passionate about black holes, maybe because it's, it sort of represents the end of, of our knowledge, so to speak. And, and, it, and they challenge us to think about what's beyond. What's before the Big Bang? What's inside black holes? Will we ever know? And uh, it's not clear that we can. And so is, is this the last battle that we find to fight as scientists now? Or is it the final frontier? We, we don't know. And so this is a really, uh, you know, a milestone, I think, in science where, you know, we either are able to transcend those boundaries, think about what's beyond, or we're stuck. But nonetheless, I think we'll keep searching, you know, we'll keep asking questions. And that's what really what makes us special. You know, we do science not only because of it's just science. We are fascinated. We want to know. 
right? We are curious. And that, I think, is in the end what's maybe the most the, the most important thing we cherish about science. It's such a human enterprise which exemplifies who we are, curious people who can ask questions and sometimes have to wait long for answers. So maybe, you know, some, some answers we'll never get, but still, we'll keep asking. Well, we were just talking with Professor Heino Falke. He has penned the new book, Light in the Darkness, Black Holes, the Universe, and Us. And Dr. Falke, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.